Hello and welcome to Nightlight. In the very early days of my ministry, before I knew much of anything about theology or history, I sometimes heard myself say things while I was preaching that I didn't even necessarily believe myself. For instance, though I was completely steeped in the footnotes of the Schofield Bible, footnotes regarding the end times, pre-trib rapture, seven-year tribulation, second coming of Christ, so forth. One night I heard myself refute the entire line of thinking. I simply said that we assume many things about the Lord's return that are not going to happen that way. And we best humble ourselves and listen to him and lay aside our charts and seek the face of the Lord for wisdom. I was just as shocked as the audience and found myself on a journey of prayerful study and repentance concerning my assumptions and my adherence to what I came to believe were mostly men's ideas instead of Scripture. Now, please understand, I've said it before, that I know that there are those who adhere to the Schofield concepts and believe that they are certainly adhering to Scripture. But all I'm suggesting, both then and now, is that we question what is Scripture up against what is men. They're not the same thing. The same sort of thing happened a few years later. In the early 1980s, I spoke something I didn't necessarily believe, or at least did not want to believe. I said that God himself was about to kick down the white picket fence of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle-class morality that kept the Western church safely separated from the pain and the sin and the sufferings of racial, economic, and sexual brokenness and forced the church to either put up or shut up. For we were only concerned with the maintaining of our own personal security and comfort And we were refusing to allow the brokenness of the world to come inside our white picket fence so God would kick that fence down. I love white picket fences, actually. They speak of a more peaceful and orderly time of our history. So it was not some personal prejudice that I was carrying around inside of me that made me want to kick the fence down. Again, And this time, really more intensely, I found myself questioning my own self-comfort, my own prejudice, my own pharisaical posturing against the real call of the gospel. The Lord wasted no time in kicking down my own white picket fence long before he began kicking down the churches at large. But that kicking is fully here now, isn't it? Am I suggesting that every attack on us is from God or is divinely affirmed? Well, of course not. But remember that often God allowed Israel's enemies to be his rod of correction on a wayward and disobedient people. And after Israel would repent, then God would turn to those whom he had used as his tool to chastise Israel And they would then come under God's judgment for the evil way they behaved while they were attacking God's people. Jeremiah chapter 50, 
Isaiah chapter 10. <clears throat> but judgment must begin at the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17. Now remember the word judgment does not mean destruction in most contexts, though it can in the final event mean that. Judgment means to judge between, to put right that which is wrong, as the judges in the book by the same name separated the evil from the good and were called the deliverers of God's people. So judgment is for the ultimate purpose of deliverance from evil. We as a nation are certainly under God's judgment. To believe otherwise is to believe God is indifferent to evil and to us, and that is far more terrible a state than to be under his correction and chastisement, I promise you. It would mean we are a bastard nation no longer even worthy of his attention. Thank God we are under his chastising judgment. <clears throat> but judgment follows natural patterns of divinely ordained laws of sowing and reaping, which human beings are responsible for. There's a human element of choice making both personally and corporately uh, the results of our choosing. And then the eventual judgments follow as a result of those choices. This has been explained clearly by a Scottish history professor named Alexander Tyler. In 1887, he wrote these words, A democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only survive until the voters discover they can vote for themselves generous gifts from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority votes for the candidates who promise them the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse over loose fiscal policy, and then that's followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been approximately 200 years. During those 200 years, those nations followed a natural progression from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to abundance, <clears throat> from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. Now, Professor Joseph Olson of Hamline University Law School in St. Paul, Minnesota, says with reference to Alexander Tyler's description of the fall of nations, quote, the number of states won by Obama was 19 by Mitt Romney was 29. The square miles of land won by Obama was 580,000. Romney, 2,427,000. The population of counties won by Obama was 127 million. Romney, 143 million. The murder rate per 100,000 residents in counties won by Obama was 13.2 percent of 100,000 people murdered each other in these counties. The murder rate in those who voted for Romney was 2.1. In 
In the aggregate, the map of the territory won by Romney was mostly the land owned by taxpaying citizens of that county. Obama territory mostly encompassed those citizens living in low-income tenements, living off various forms of government welfare. Over 40%, many say now 47%, of this country now lives fully in government dependency status. If amnesty is eventually given to the flood of illegal aliens already present in America, with the new flood of additional incoming now being brought into the United States, the United States is simply finished as a democratic republic. With a population devoid of any Judeo-Christian ethic to rule their impulses and control their demanded, the demanding natures, a dictatorship will simply be an unavoidable necessity unless there is some intervention <clears throat> like the awakening of the church to evangelize this potential harvest of souls that are being brought to our door. Yes, by political foolishness, but still, what a blessing it could be if the church was awake. Now, the real question always is, as true as all this information is that we just described, what is God doing with the nations? Uh, in a book by T. Austin Sparks, he says, God never gives up his original decision to bring his people to spiritual fullness. If his people in general move away from his intention, he raises up vessels and ministries both to bring that intention back into view and as far as possible, recover his people to that intention. Or to say it another way, God's constant and unchanging focus is on the saving of nations. When his people lose that vision, he will shake everything that can be shaken in order for his people to be restored to their true identity in him. This will align them to his purposes in the earth, which, uh, which main purpose is always to, quote, make disciples of every nation, teaching them to observe all things which I have commanded you, Matthew 28. Now, we cannot teach the nations to observe all things that Jesus commanded us if we are not observing them. The shaking helps restore our true focus as God's people. Once that is restored, the effective work of carrying out his command is automatically put back in place. We are in that shaking now. It's a merciful and welcome shaking. We can call it being under judgment if you like, for as we have stated before, judgment means to put things right that are wrong. How we have needed to have things put right. Corruption cannot be reversed. It has to be purged out and replaced with that which is incorruptible. Have you ever found an unrecognizable glob of disintegrated substance in the back of your refrigerator? It was once food. But once it reaches a certain stage of loss of energy, loss of value, it begins to disintegrate. And that cannot be reversed. A refrigerator can slow down the process of disintegration, but it can't stop it. 
and it certainly cannot reverse it. There must be a purging out and a re-impartation of that which can bring life and nourishment. Now, I want to be careful when I say that much of the church life of the West has been a refrigerant. It has only helped preserve good things that are disintegrating from lack of real life. But the preservation, like all refrigerators, is only a temporary slowdown of the inevitable rot. Only the impartation and infusion of the incorruptible, that which is above and beyond the power of corruption, can restore what is lost and give immunity from the power of corruption. Now again, I know that analogy is not a perfect one. Thank God there are many bodies of believers which are not mere refrigerators, but who are doing what's necessary to not just slow down the inevitable rot of society, but are actually forces for life and good, which are reversing the curse of corruption. They are salt in the earth, who are going before us as light into the darkness and being examples of what we are all called to do. They are the small minority, at least for now, but that minority is growing. Regardless of how we may view the end-time scenario, there's one thing I think we can all agree on, and that is that we have never seen times like this before in our lifetime. Nations are being overturned, populations uprooted, securities shaken, trusted institutions embarrassed, while government leaders are either crooked or powerless or both. But as long as the Church of the West, especially in America, has the trappings of freedom without the real essence of it, we would have simply gone on keeping our refrigerators running, never mind that the contents is moldering and rotting more and more, the corruption of the outer world invading the icebox to the point that many simply began throwing open the doors and saying, we don't need to even hold back the rot. Rot's all good. We don't want to be judgmental, you know. It is right not to judge. It's right not to be judgmental. If we mean by that to sit in the icebox, barely holding off our own rot while looking out at non-refrigerated wilting centers and feeling we are superior because we are cold enough to not wilt yet, then yes, we should not judge. But if throwing open the doors of the icebox, or kicking down the white picket fence, if you will, is done to welcome evil in and reconcile with it, then we're all lost. But if throwing open the icebox doors or kicking down the white picket fence means we are no longer willing to live an isolated, self-centered life devoid of the presence and power of the real gospel, and we want to give the same incorruptible life to the world that we have been given and that we are receiving daily, then by all means throw open the doors and kick down the fences. Star Wars is back in theaters in case you live under a rock somewhere and didn't know it. Therefore, it's on every talk show and every toy store and every magazine cover, and I cannot help but be strongly taken back 
to the 1977 non-event, which introduced us to the transformation of film and entertainment that became Star Wars. The Christian band I worked with at that time, we'd been on a nonstop tour for days and we longed for a diversion. I remember searching through the movie section of the Orlando, Florida newspaper, hoping for something, anything, we might be able to safely go see without, on the one hand, being slimed and on the other hand, being bored and either way, wasting not only our one day off, but our valuable $2 per person ticket fee. Yes, times have changed in that way. There are few words to describe the emotions that overtook all of us as we, the only ones in the entire theater, saw the first glimpse of the Imperial Destroyer glide atop the giant screen. We knew this was not some cheaply made matinee sci-fi flick. But then, when Darth Vader entered the scene, a quote from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters came strongly to my mind, where Screwtape describes his most perfect weapon of evil, the materialist magician, that which does not adhere to the idea of spiritual reality per se, but uses instead the concept of forces, and by this slight change is able to seduce a pseudoscientific godless generation into the dark side of occultism without them even knowing that they've been seduced. This cultural shift was profound. We knew as we left the theater that day that something powerful and dangerous, though seemingly innocuous, had happened. From that afternoon all through the rest of the 1980s and into the entire 90s and beyond, from the return of the Jedi through a dozen, maybe ten dozen, occult blockbusters, to then Harry Potter, the return of Star Trek, on and on and on. America and the entire West came under the spell of the power of high-intensity, big-screen, ever-increasingly dazzling amusement. And remember that the word amusement means to not think. We no longer had to imagine. It was all done for us. We no longer had to think or reason or ponder. That was too much work. We became hypnotized by the presentation of newer and bigger and more engaging cinema. Along with that, there was the ever-decreasing element of purity, the heroic, the God-honoring, and that which blesses and affirms the family. The flow of culture poured more and more down the toilet hole, with most Christian kids riding those rapids and many falling out of their youth group boats and drowning in the sewage. About the same time of the advent of Star Wars in 1977, I was entering the most difficult time of my own deepest soul-searching over my own inner brokenness. One evening, as I was about to go to dinner with a friend, we stepped into his van, and on the way, he pushed in his cassette player. Barry McGuire was singing these words, and as he began to sing, the Holy Spirit spoke to me as clearly as I've ever heard his voice. This is for you. This is your prayer. Embrace what he's singing. 
I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser with all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Never a word said she. But all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I silently responded, Lord Jesus, do with me whatever you will. Whatever it takes, I want to be completely yours. I choose you. I choose your cross. All this occurred in a few moments riding between our house and a burger joint. But it set in motion the work of God in me that would eventually guide me through the decades of ever-increasing decadence that would have seduced me more and more deeply into the dark had it not been for that loving hand of providence which saved me from mindless amusement and helped me learn to think spiritually, biblically, clearly. Well, now, nearly 40 years later, we are faced with a tiredness of soul, even in those who are now the age we were in the 1970s. College-age kids that I speak with, and many whose words I read in various articles and sociological studies, have a world weariness in them. There is little of the excitement and childlike wonder of earlier American and Western youth. They are old souls in many ways. They've had their childhoods raped and ripped from them before they were out of puberty. They've seen all the razzle-dazzle of Hollywood and the music world. They are only captured by the twinkling of a momentary new thing that easily then moves on to the next thing, wondering, is that all there is? They long for meaning. They search for love and bonding because they have had so little stable family life. All the while, the still refrigerated part of the church hides behind what's left of the white picket fence. It peeps out and makes dire prophecies about how hopeless the world is and how this generation is beyond hope. It looks for antichrist around every corner and hopes to fly out of here as soon as possible. Or, if not that, seeks to find some new gimmick to dangle before this generation in hopes to catch their attention so as to invite them to come become refrigerated. I know that sounds harsh. Forgive me if it's unfair, but I cannot balance a correction or warning while I'm trying to give it. The American church became overwhelmed with entertainment instead of hunger for truth in the 1980s, and that got worse in the 90s. It became enamored with personalities instead of worshiping the bright and morning star. We rode along with the rest of the culture, taking in more and more of its values and lack of value instead of selling all we had and buying the one pearl of great price. We embraced the world's view of love, which is lust, and began to rot along with the world as if we were no more than the corpses of the world. Even the refrigerant that had seemed to keep us intact for decades no longer held back the smell of death. God had to allow this counterfeit half-Christianity to be challenged and shown up as false, as weak, as an old, used-up wineskin that can no longer hold the wine. Only in the face of collapse will his people begin to cry out for the real, real, 
only in the face of open frontal attack on truth, on our so-called values, would we then begin to examine those values and realize they are not mere values. They are the very heart of the truth of God, and we will not lay down and watch them be destroyed. But we had been laying down. Where were we when babies began to be killed? We were silent, except for our Roman Catholic brothers. Where were we when marriage began to be destroyed and evil paraded itself in television, film, music, and the porn video industry, so-called? We helped destroy the family by failing to honor our own vows and worshiping at the idol of altars of entertainment. Where were we when sexual sin became more and more prevalent? We were not hard to find. We were in the orgies. Where were we when people whose families fell apart, leaving them tormented with various sexual and emotional needs, many with same-sex attractions, came for help? Where were we? What did we have to offer when they sought our help? We were either secretly participating in those very sins or self-righteously condemning their sin without ever taking responsibility for our own sin, which paved the way for their sin. And in many circles, the main topic is not how has the church failed? How did we who are supposed to be salt of the earth allow it to become so rotten? How are we who are the light of the world allowing it to become so dark? What must we do to repent? How can we turn this around and bring light and salt instead of rot and darkness? No, the main topic among many is the rapture. How can we get the hell out of here so we don't have to deal with the issues of hell that are destroying people? The main topic is how dark is it going to get and how hopeless is it going to be before we finally fly away? How is there nothing of hope in anything we have to say. Again, I know that may sound harsh, and I know I've got many friends who adhere to that doctrine who are not sticking their heads in the sand and who are not ignoring the call of the gospel to the world. But for the most part, those pre-rapture, pre-trib rapture adherents are not the majority of the church that believes that doctrine. The majority of the church that believes that doctrine is hiding inside the refrigerator hoping they'll be swooped out any minute. The Holy Spirit isn't saying anything about that. He is never with those who cry that there is no hope. He isn't saying come hide in the refrigerator. He isn't saying to rebuild the broken picket fence that was torn down. He's saying the very opposite to rebuild the old waste places and raise up the foundations of many generations and become the repairers of the breach and the restorers of paths to dwell in. University surveys, which ask students if they would be interested in knowing how to have a vital and meaningful knowledge of a relationship with Jesus Christ, are responding in huge numbers with, yes, they would. When asked if they are interested in church, they say no. In Romania, the largest response to any meeting of its kind in history showed up for Ravi Zacharias's one evening address. They had to multiply the venues because the hunger was so great. 
It is not Jesus this generation is rejecting. It is the refrigerator. It is not the definition of truth they are rejecting. It is the white picket fence that has so misrepresented the truth that they reject. Did you ever read Huckleberry Finn? It's not politically correct now. I'm sure if you're under the age of 40, you probably never read it. We read it in school. But if you've ever read Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, you remember the part of the story where Huck and Jim, the runaway slave, are riding down the river on a raft. And Huck is aware that according to his church upbringing, if he was to help Jim escape, God would send him straight to hell. He had written a note to turn Jim in and felt good about that fact that he was doing the right thing. Then he looked at Jim, whom he loved, and remembered all the good things that they shared together and all that Jim meant to him, and he tore up the note. And he said to himself, then I'll just have to go to hell, I reckon. Now, none of us has the least struggle with what Huck did, and any of us would happily inform him that the church had it all completely backwards and wrong. Yet, the conservative church of Mark Twain's time went to war rather than to bow to the clear teaching of Scripture and the call of conscience against the evil of slavery. Well, how many other wrongs might the current church be guilty of harboring? How many other Huck Finns might there be whom we misjudge as rebels against God when it's not God they reject, but the misrepresentation of him? There's an ever-increasing rejection of abortion among young adults because the truth is finally getting out and the church is finally becoming united in its mission to overturn this evil. But at the same time, there's just as swift an acceptance and support for same-sex relationships among the same group. How could that be? Well, because the truth is getting out about abortion. The truth is not getting out about homosexuality. And the church is failing to communicate in a clear, honest, and humble way about sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular. The young adult population will ask things like this. My parents couldn't keep our family together. We were church folks. There was no love in our home. So when two people of the same sex do love each other and are faithful to each other, who are we to stop them or criticize them when we couldn't keep our homes together? Now, I know there are clear answers to that and other questions like that question, but we're not getting those answers communicated because of a certain degree of hypocrisy. That hypocrisy is over our own heterosexual sins that we have not as a church confessed or repented of. And also there's a fear of the entire subject which contributes to a lot of gross ignorance and misinformation. Pulpits utterly fail when preachers use meaningless cliches about things like Adam and Eve versus Adam and Steve and rant and rave from Romans chapter 1 without any awareness of the heterosexual sins that helped produce homosexual confusion. Do we think that a just and holy and good and loving God will turn a deaf ear to this terrible kind of misrepresentation of his heart? I can tell you that he won't. What he will do is keep letting the shaking 
take place. Keep letting the confrontation take place. Keep letting the Babylonian army come against wayward Israel until we repent. And when we are keeping our marriage vows, and beyond that, really loving each other, not only in marriage, but in all our relationships, then we will have the moral authority and the Holy Spirit power to reach those who now only see us as self-righteous, ignorant blowhards. I had a conversation yesterday with a close friend of mine, a pastor I have known and respected for over 30 years. He's a solid man of God with a heart and a mind filled with love and truth. And he told me a story that we all need to hear. He was in a men's gathering at a restaurant, and as they were making their way out the building, going their separate ways, he noticed the young lady who had waited on them. And in Steve's usual warm, conversational way, he engaged her in just enough small talk to make it easy and non-threatening to talk to her about Jesus. Do you have any idea what all these old guys were doing here this early on a Saturday morning? When she politely but disinterestedly replied, no, he said, well, it's because we all love Jesus and we love to get together when we can and talk about Jesus. He then asked her this question, a question he'd asked hundreds of people over the years. Has anybody ever offered to help you come to know Jesus in a meaningful, personal way? She said, no, she hadn't. He then said, well, can I just tell you? Steve said he'd never in all the years of asking that been completely turned down until now. She coldly and flatly said no. He said he must have looked startled, so startled that she felt a bit bad about the force of her negative response. And as emotion began to rise into her eyes, she said, my mother was a church lady and her boyfriend. He raped me. As the deeper emotions became more apparent and hard for her to subdue, she looked about to be sure she wasn't drawing attention to herself. Then with gritted teeth and a whisper, she said, and the whole time it was happening, I was praying for help. Steve's well-equipped for moments like this because he's a father and a shepherd and a former angry sinner who got saved, got fed up with church, turned away from it all, served himself for years, then was loved back to his true self by the same grace that at first saved him. He gently and unobtrusively looked her in the eyes and with a sense of God's heart in his heart said, Darling, Jesus didn't do this to you and he's more angry for you than you are for yourself. And I was supposed to be here this moment to tell you how much he loves you. And he doesn't blame you for being angry he doesn't blame you for hating the church. He doesn't even blame you for hating him. I'm here to let you know you can come to him with all your pain. He's always here for you. 
Her wall came down just a bit, but no, there's no instant happy ending to this story. She didn't stop and fall to the floor and pray the sinner's prayer. She regained her posture, gathered herself up to be able to finish her job, and walked away. Steve did not have to close the sale. All he had to do was be Jesus to her in that moment, and he was. He knew this was not the time or place to engage her in some deep discussions of why God allows evil. He didn't reach for her reasoning or her thinking. He reached for her heart, and he was certain that he reached it. And he will see her again, Lord willing, if not Steve, someone, one plants and other waters. God brings the healing and the salvation. This is the true function of the church. Outside, in the marketplace of real everyday life, beyond the white picket fence, it is seemingly a repeated pattern of our fallen human nature that we become turned inward, clannish, legalistically self-protective of our group and doing things our way. And God has to over and over destroy the nest in some way so we fly again. Jesus set it as an example for us to carry it on. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me, Clay, you, to bind up the brokenhearted. One translation of the word brokenhearted is those who have a shattered mind. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. To comfort all who mourn. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be trees of righteousness planted by the Lord so that he might be glorified. And they, I quoted this a while ago, these people that we reach, they shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the wasted cities of Detroit and Los Angeles and Chicago and Houston and London and Ontario and you name it. They will repair the wasted cities and the desolations of many generations. Jesus said, go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, Matthew 28. I'm right now going through the Gospels and writing down every command Jesus spoke to see if I'm obeying them. Then I'm seeking to help all who will listen Obey them too. This is the meaning of the Great Commission. It doesn't mean just to tell people about Jesus or ask them if they are saved or give them a tract. And I'm not being critical of any of those good things. Steve just gave us a great example of witnessing. But if you ask everyone on the planet those questions, you still have not obeyed the command Jesus gave. It's ludicrous to think 
But all we got to do is get the last person told about the gospel. And then the rapture can come. Or the end of the world can come. That's not what Jesus said. He said, go make disciples of the nations. He's not even satisfied when you win somebody to the Lord and disciple them. He says, I want you to make disciples of nations. Why? Because his father promised him in Psalm 2 verse 8, ask of me and I will give you nations. As your inheritance and the end of the earth is your possession. Abraham Kuyper said correctly, quote, there is not a square inch of all of creation, but what Jesus says of it, mine. We have sadly and erroneously misunderstood our calling and our commission if we think all it means is to get this one or that one saved. As important and wonderful as that is, God is allowing the world to shake to its foundations in order to shake awake his people so that we will return to the task we have failed to embrace. Some of you may remember back a few years ago when there was a powerful and darkness-shattering move of the Holy Spirit in Africa through the ministry of Reinhard Bonnke, in which over a million Africans were saved in one great sweep of the move of God. And with all the gratitude for that great move, Here's the sad truth about it. Who came in behind the Western evangelists after they left and discipled those Africans? Who came in and taught them how to do family and how to make laws to govern themselves? How to carry on business and how to live in the day-by-day world? Was it the church? No. It was Islam. As one teacher recently lamented, Evangelical children are being prepared to fly away and Islamic children are being trained to take over the world. Many news reports are telling us that the church in the West is disintegrating, melting, diminishing. It depends on how much they want it to be true as to which descriptive they use. But the fact is that what is diminishing is the refrigerator the white picket fence. Once it fell, it resulted in millions of believers leaving the system and they did not turn to evil or backslide necessarily. Some may have turned back to their sin, but even if they did, they are not going to be able to stand it if they really are his. Many are not seeking sin, they're seeking God. They're seeking God, not the God of a system of religion, but the real living God who has called his people out of the cold and into action for him and with him. They are entering all forms of daily life, in business, in the arts, in the economy, in sports, in education, in foreign relief work, and in places where no one will know their names but God, but he knows them and they know him. They're no longer trying to get people to come to church with them. They are becoming the church and obeying the command not to come, but to go, to occupy till the king comes. I have a spiritual son who is a master business builder. 
I met him when he was 17 years old. He came to me shaken because his bank account at 17 had hit a bit below $3,000. That's a lot of money back in the mid-70s. I'd never seen that much myself at the time we first talked. Now, he wasn't merely afraid of poverty or greedy. He was not a hoarder. He was concerned, even at that age, of not being able to gain enough capital in order to be able to eventually do the business he dreamed of doing. I was directed by the Lord to tell him that if he would give that money, plant it in places where it will do good for others and release it to God, that by the time he was an adult, God would make him a millionaire many times over. Now this has nothing whatsoever to do with some silly, shallow, name-it-claim-it, believism formula of giving in order to get. No, it has to do with who David was created to be, what he was created to do, and how God wanted him to exercise his faith in pursuing the fulfillment of that calling. He obeyed. Over the years, he learned more and more how to obey. He stumbled. He fell. He made mistakes like we all do. Now, years later, he is exactly what God told him then that he would be, But it is far more than that. He didn't just make money so he could make money. He's building a fleet of businesses that has his spiritual DNA in the very company. He loves and pastors his people. He knows their names, their spouses' names. He trains his managers to have the same care and guiding spirit of Christ in their management vision that he has. He's literally shepherding his company and its employees while in no way manifesting a religious spirit about it. It's not religion. It's the kingdom of God manifested in real life out where the people are, the way Jesus told us to do it. Regardless of how the end of the age will unfold, whether we fly out of here early or we don't, we have clearly been told what to do in the meantime. Occupy till I come, Luke 19, verse 13. That word in Greek is where we get the English word pragmatic. Pragmatic means to be down-to-earth, hard-nosed, sensible, no-nonsense, focused. Jesus warned that the children of the light could learn some things from the children of the world, Not their crooked ways, of course, but their pragmatism when it comes to getting the job done. There's no need to try to make Jesus be saying something more spiritual and more religious than what he actually said. Jesus simply said what he meant, that the children of this present evil world have a pragmatic wisdom about them and a shrewdness of how to get things done and that the children of light don't have that and need to learn it. That's too large a subject to tackle here, but I hope it stirs us to think in terms of our calling, our vision, our approach to the daily world we have to deal with, our confidence that we are called to occupy. And if that is so, and it is, then we will make it a point to occupy with godly wisdom and shrewdness 
hard-headedness, practicality, down-to-earth good sense, in the business world, in the sports world, in the arts world, in the educational world, in every aspect of life outside of church, as we use the term. Of course, we could use some common sense in church also. Anointed, godly common sense. Now, it's been said that if we want to be supernaturally empowered by God to get things done, we need to have the natural discipline that he can anoint with superpower. He's not superpowering a lazy sluggard, hopefully, who's just trusting for a miracle to make up for his lack of preparation, but God can only supernaturally bless what is already a naturally well-groomed man or woman. In the days of my early experience with the Holy Spirit back in the early 70s, when I was in college, well-meaning people over and over told me, you need to get out of here and get the job done for Jesus. Don't waste your time with education and all that stuff. What good is all that when the Lord's going to come any minute and it's all going to be done? If I heard that once, I heard it a dozen times or more. I can tell you that though I was granted grace and mercy to have a fruitful early ministry, it was far, far from what it should have or could have been if I had yielded to wiser heads. Like my Greek professor, Dr. Sterling, who saw me being seduced away by all this kind of faulty thinking. Clay, stay. Discipline your mind and your emotions to remain focused on the Word. There'll be a time enough for you to fulfill your ministry, but let God hone you so you are worth listening to. But my poor old Greek teacher, what did he know? He didn't even speak in tongues. He didn't even have the power like I did. He was not going to stand in the way of God's calling on me. No, sir. Yep, Dr. Sterling, all he had was the wisdom of God coming through the caring heart of a wise fathering teacher, pastor. That's all he had. And I took off prematurely and made a lot, and I mean a lot, of ignorant messes. God saved me from them. I pray God saved others from the effects of them that I caused. Thank God for his saving grace, but how about thanking God for his guiding wisdom so we don't need as much saving? (laughs) Yeah, that too. Folks, I hope you hear my heart. More than that, I hope you hear the word of the Lord. I pray that I'm speaking the truth. I believe I am. Regardless of your eschatological school of thought, what are you doing outside the salt shaker? What are you doing outside the church for the four walls of of your church? I know many of you don't have four walls of a church. Many, many of our nightlight people have been walking this journey that I'm describing here. You've You've had no platform in the life of your church. You, Some of you gave up because your church was apostate. Some of you gave up because your church might have been doctrinally right, but it was completely devoid of any interest in following the Lord or obeying him. And you had to get out before you froze to death. 
Some of you are finding fellowship around a coffee table in your own living room. Some of you find fellowship in just periodic meetings. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm coming to the awareness that this is not some aberration that's going to stop. This is part of a journey, a pioneering work that we are being called to pioneer. And pioneers quite often walk only in small groups or alone. But we're going out into the highways and hedges and the byways. We're going out into the, 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 the places where they, won't, they don't want what church has and church doesn't know what to give them. And so we are becoming those who build the bridge. You know, the priesthood, the word priest means a bridge. We are kings and priests. What does that mean? Well, in this context, it means we are to rule in the marketplace. We are to cross over from the religious world into the world of all those elements that I've mentioned repeatedly in this study. And there we are to rule in life by Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for every man and woman and boy and girl in the sound of my voice. I pray that you will release people from religious ideas that maybe has held them in bondage for far too long, where they really think they've got to stay inside some cloister of religious definition, or, or they, all they ever do is try to bring people to come to go to church with them. <clears throat> How many times, Lord, have I heard people say, I, I wish I could invite people to church, but my church is so dead, I don't want to bring them there, or... I don't trust my church to be a good, safe place for them to grow. What a travesty. Help us, Father, help us, Father, to go out and get them and bring them to you and then continue to live in fellowship and love and truth with them, and we can help them grow. We can help them learn. We can help them become disciples. How do we think the early church did it? They didn't have a church to take people to for the most part in most parts of the of the book of Acts. Father, help us, awaken us, empower us, envision us, and, and Lord, make us miserable until we do it. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will be given the fruits of his suffering. Ask of me, and I will give you nations as an inheritance for you. And the ends of the earth is your possession. Thank you, Father. Amen.